Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Political Capital Podcast, where the Lanson's public affairs team will be recapping the results of the Super Thursday elections, considering what this will mean for the government, opposition and the devolved nations. We will use the election results as a springboard to examine the government's legislative agenda laid out in the Queen's speech. Lanson's, as you may know, is an award-winning strategic reputation management consultancy which blends expertise across customer, financial, policy, employee and media engagement to help build and protect reputations. Good morning. Welcome to Lanson's Public Affairs Team Live Huddle, which is our snapshot analysis and highlights of the election results from the last week and that in turn set the scene for uh, yesterday's Queen's speech and we'll be going through both those things over the next hour. Um, quite a lot of mostly, in fact, familiar faces on this call, uh, but uh, as uh, external people are invited as well. For those of you who don't know me, I'm James Dowling and I'm Lanson's lead political consultant. So next year is divided into broadly two, well, I suppose three actually sections. Uh, shortly, I will ask Mitchell and Sam to take us through the top lines uh, from last week's local, regional and devolved government elections, plus, of course, the Hartlepool by-election. And given their, given their differing political persuasions, I suspect that Mitchell is likely to talk about Hartlepool and what that means for the government priority to retain and make further inroads into the so-called red wall of previously Labour supporting northern seats. And on the other hand, I'm quite interested to hear from Sam on how Starmer carefully considered his response to the results and then spectacularly shot himself in the foot in a way which worsened his standing with his party and obscured Labour's successes behind a huge media row in the wake of Hartlepool. Um, Having had the benefit of that context, uh, Alice and I will then take you through uh, the highlights from the Queen's speech, what the government was saying they were doing, what they were actually doing and what the detail is. So without further ado, uh, if I just hand over to uh, Mitchell and Sam to take us through uh, the context from last week's elections. Fantastic. So Mitchell, I believe you wrote a piece for our political capital this week on Hartlepool. Did you want to to start with just a breakdown? Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. Um, so many of you will know that last Thursday, um, there was a huge amount of elections that took place across the country, um, dubbed Super Thursday. Um, and depending on where you were in the country, it depended really on how many votes you got. I think in some places there were up to four different elections um, and all at different levels of priority. So obviously we had the police and crime commissioners, we had local council elections, we had county council elections, there were um, devolved mayoral elections, and then there were the Scottish and Welsh elections, and there was one by-election, which was the Hartlepool by-election. So um, Hartlepool, um, up in the northeast, um, has been Labour heartland since its, since its inception. Um, and many of you remember back in 2019 uh, at the general election where the Conservatives made the what is known as the Labour Red Wall, the seats up in the north of England that have almost always been um, have almost always been Labour Labour constituencies, um, where they tried to make inroads using their get Brexit done argument and then also the levelling up agenda. Um, Hartlepool was the most recent by-election in that. It was the next opportunity for Boris Johnson to to demonstrate his levelling up agenda, but also to get a bit of a pulse check on on what the people in the northeast think of his um, premiership to date. Now, many of you will know, I'm sure everyone's seen on the news, the Conservatives um, had a big win, a uh, 7,000 majority in the Hartlepool by-election, um, which is um, pretty big, considering they've never had a Conservative or a female MP. Um, and now they've got a Conservative female MP. 
Um, so it's two two new um, occasions for them up at Hartlepool. Um, however, it's not it's not the biggest surprise um, because obviously, as you know, in 2019, the Conservative have been making inroads up in the the north and the northeast specifically. Uh, but then there's also Ben Houchin, the guy in the top right hand corner of the slide, um, who is the mayor of Tees Valley, and he's extremely popular. I mean, he stood for the the mayor of Tees Valley once again, and and he actually surprised Labour back in 2018 where he became the unexpected mayor of Tees Valley. And that was the first sign that the Conservatives were really making inroads and their message of Brexit was really getting through in the in the northern heartlands. Um, and he's been working very hard and he's been demonstrating the benefits of having a Conservative and not being a not just because he's a Conservative, but because he is the party of government of being able to get things done. Right. He can make a promise and government can give him the cash to make it done, make it happen. And he's worked really hard to cultivate some of those seats. Um, and the by-election is the start of what could be further inroads to the to the northeast. So um, there's going to be another election, uh, by-election in Batley and Spen, um, where I think there's a, the MP there had a majority of about 350. Um, and, and that's going to be another one to look at what, what do people think of Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda. Um, so that's a quick snapshot of Hartlepool. I mean, I'm sure everyone saw the pictures of Boris Johnson going up to Hartlepool after the by-election with the huge balloon, which there's obviously a picture of. Um, it's 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 massive for the Conservative Party because it really is territory that they've never sat in before. Um, and it demonstrates that their message is getting through, their levelling up agenda is getting through. What will obviously be important as we head towards the next general election, which obviously is still um, I don't know, two years away, two or three years away, um, is can they keep the support? Because they'll need to keep the support in order to keep their majority. I mean, obviously, and Sam can come in on the second, Labour's got a long way to come. Um, however, um, it really demonstrates that they're solidifying that base in the north. Um, however, and I think Sam will come to this in a second, is that yeah. coming at the expense of the south? So, Sam, I'll pass over to you. Um, Absolutely. So, and I and I think there are two important caveats to the to the Hartlepool win on, on that front, and and to Ben Houchin's win there, uh, which is it's firstly uh, both Hartlepool and and Teesside are very much English races, um, and I'll come on briefly onto the Scottish and Welsh results, which I think will be really interesting, and, and Mitch will be interesting to hear your thoughts on Scotland in particular. Um, but also in the context of the mayoral races, actually Ben Houchin is an outlier. He and Andy Street are the only two remaining Conservative Metro mayors in the country. Um, out of the 12 possible seats, Labour took 10, uh, including two new ones, one in West Yorkshire, which is why you have the Batley and Spend by election that's coming up, Tracy Braben being the first female uh, Metro mayor in the UK. Um, and also Labour winning in the west of England. We're talking Somerset, Bristol, um, you know, areas which it, whose MPs include Jacob Rees-Mogg. This is a really interesting sort of shift that you're beginning to see. And when, when there's been a lot of the talk about a realignment in politics, um, what ha there has been less of a conversation about is that this cuts both ways. Uh, whilst the northern seats may well go conservative, and as Ed Mitchell has has, has said um, very, very accurately, um, there is there are absolute conservative inroads into the north of England. Uh, there is similarly amongst the more sort of liberal conservative, uh, liberal conservative seats and liberal conservative voters, an inching away uh, that you can see uh, in the mayoral races, but also in some of the council shifting uh, council shifts that you've seen. Uh, Yes, Labour lost Sheffield, Labour lost uh, Durham, Labour lost a lot of heartland councils in this election, but the Conservatives lost control of Tunbridge Wells. 
David Cameron's house in Chipping Norton now has a Labour County councillor. Um, the seat of Huntingdonshire, John Major, is now sits underneath a Labour mayor. You're seeing these interesting and I don't want to uh, I don't want to overplay this. You know, Labour lost 325 councillors. It was a dismal night for Labour. However, what you are seeing are these fascinating outlier results that suggest the hints of growth. And you see Labour may continuing to make inroads in cities like Canterbury, uh, which historically would it would have been bizarre to have seen a Labour representative anywhere in, in the vicinity of Canterbury, probably even visiting. Um, but now you see it has a, a Labour MP, a Labour council. Um, you know, you're seeing these Labour inroads in the South coming through as well. And that's a really interesting shift that you can see. However, important but, to also oh, go on, Mitch. No, I was going to say, Sam, I think it's, um, and this is where we'll probably differ on opinion. I think it's interesting, um, the news that's come out yesterday, that the, the government are going to be changing how people vote for their mayors. Because it's obviously a bit like comparing apples and pears at the moment, because the way you vote your MPs and the way you vote for your councillors is different to how you vote for your mayors. Um, I mean, we could run a whole different session on different electoral systems, <clears throat> but the electoral system by which you vote for your mayor, where it's a preference vote, and those of you who have voted for a mayor will have seen it firsthand last week, means that it is actually easier for um, a Labour candidate usually to be elected because if you're a conservative voter, you're less likely to put a tick in a, a left wing box once you voted conservative. Whereas if you're um, sort of centre or left wing, it's probably easier to put a, a tick in, you know, the Green Party and then Labour. Um, I mean, there's an interesting there's an interesting story there about the the, the, the general fact. And actually, if we want to come briefly back on to, to Hartlepool, I'll phrase it like this. Um, Labour has many parties to its left um, or, or slightly to its right that will take votes away from Labour uh, as a whole. So you've got the Liberal Democrats, you've got the Greens. Why did Labour lose Sheffield? Well, the Greens won an extra five seats, the Liberal Democrats won an extra three, and therefore Labour lost control. Um, so under a Merrill's preference system, as Mitchell's just said, yes, Labour will probably will benefit. The flip side of that is that you have a first-past-the-post system in for, for all of your MPs, which tends to benefit uh, Conservative uh, parties that do not have these additional parties stealing votes from them, um, and particularly in tight races, that can really undermine it. The one exception for this, and the reason that Hartlepool didn't fall in 2019, is the Brexit party. And one of the interesting things about Hartlepool is how much the Brexit party would have formed or may have formed a gateway may have been a gateway party for those northern seats then voting conservative almost a transition if you look at the uh percentage of the brexit party got in uh 2019 which i think was about 23 24 percent i could be overstating that um but almost all of that percentage then went to the conservative candidate uh in this by-election so you're you're seeing that, yes that's i think that's a really good point as well for the councils because obviously the conservatives made huge gains across councils but if we remember the last time that these councils were actually fought there were a lot of UKIP councillors. Now, the UKIP council, the UKIP votes in a lot. I mean, UKIP is basically a non-existent party anymore, although it does exist in different pockets around the country. Therefore, people who may have voted UKIP probably ended up voting Conservative in this election, um, which is probably also why the Conservatives managed to gain a lot of council seats across the across the country. Yeah, no, definitely, and and that that's absolutely right. Uh, the you know, if you go back to 
2013, 2014, Labour's big concern is how UKIP is eating into our vote. Well, UKIP is no longer eating into the, that vote. That vote has largely gone Conservative. Um, and that's a really interesting dynamic. But obviously, the the, the elephant in the room, uh, both looking very smiley in, in the slides we put together here, uh, are the Scottish and, and uh, Welsh leaders uh, and their increased votes. I mean, one of the one of the possible angles you can look at, it, one of the possible prisms you can look at this election through is that it was a victory for the incumbents. Uh, the Conservatives are incumbent in England and they made significant gains. The SNP are incumbent in Scotland. They also made gains and in Wales. Uh, Mark Drakeford's Labour also made uh, pretty reasonable gains despite some fairly dire predictions. Um, and this is this is particularly in terms of Scotland, this is probably the most important vote um, of Thursday's votes overall. I mean, this is the, uh, obviously, the SNP didn't quite achieve a majority, but they did increase their standing uh, in Holyrood, um, which does give those in favour of independence a further argument to push that independence referendum. It has long been promised that the SNP continue to do well, um, they would push for a second independence referendum. Um, and the 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 numbers on <laughs> the, the polling for how it would look if there was an independence referendum, it goes back and forth, but it's certainly a closer vote than it would have been in 2014, particularly following Brexit, um, particularly with a figure as, as as unpopular in Scotland as Boris Johnson is. Um, it's it's not necessarily uh, a fight the Conservatives want to have. But Mitch, I didn't know if you wanted to talk to the Scottish results at all, because I think you've got a slightly different angle on it in terms of what, what that election result means. I would suggest it does empower the SNP um, to to push for that push for that result, but I think you've come to a, a slightly different conclusion. Yeah, my, my, my conclusion was that Sam has probably uh, believed the spin that Nicola Sturgeon has, uh, has thrown on her result. But... But but I I actually do disagree with Sam um, in a friendly way um, <laughs> that um, I, I think this is probably quite positive for the unions because it shows the union because it shows that with a bit more help if they coalesce around a pro union candidate the likelihood is that independence can be beaten. Um, what we saw quite a lot around the Scottish elections is that union vote. Now it wasn't strong enough, so in some constituencies had you know Labour lent the Tories an extra thousand votes or had the Tories lent Labour an extra thousand votes the SNP would have been further away from a majority than they are at the moment they probably would have held a couple more seats and um, now when you get to a, a referendum the answer is yes or no so it's you know the votes that are, are coalescing around one or the other um, which I think shows that we're probably quite positive about going into a referendum. Now, I don't believe we'll have a referendum anytime soon. And I think Nicola Sturgeon is already starting to slowly backtrack on that. You know, she's already said, uh, we've got to wait till we come out of the pandemic. We've got to wait till the, the economy is recovered. Now, if you're looking at predictions, that's not going to be for another three or four years until the economy bounces back fully, which means four years out, three years out, we're close to another election again. I mean, we would have had a general election. Um, so I can't see a referendum before the next general election. And, and if um, the union parties can do well in the next general election, I think that threat of a referendum probably recedes a bit further. Basically, what I'm trying to say is I think we're still a way off from having that second referendum. And I think um, the fact that the SNP didn't get their majority, although they do have um, a coalition that is a majority for independence, um, I think we discussed this the other day, 
people don't always vote green just because they want independence. People vote green because sustainability is is a hot topic at the moment. People want to vote for a greener society. So I, in my view, it should all be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, but I guess the next few months, years will will play out how, how those elections um, how those elections do play out up in Scotland. And then very briefly, um, because I could talk for it on a long time and I will spare everyone, uh, we have the follow up to uh, what happened after the elections within the Labour Party, which was if we had a little bit of infighting. Uh, <laughs> we had um, the perhaps one of the, the strangest political manoeuvres uh, in recent memory. And after uh, three to four years of Jeremy Corbyn, that is quite remarkable. Um, before the votes had even finished being counted on, uh, on Saturday, you saw Keir Starmer attempting to push the blame, having said that he would uh, himself take full responsibility for the election results, trying to push um, all of the possible blame onto Angela Rayner. Um, I have to confess, I picked, it, picked this photo because it did look like a very promising new ITV drama. Um, but um, it, it, the ITV drama does sort of suggest the, the level of uh, the conversation within the Labour Party uh, over the last couple of days. Um, you've seen uh, some fairly remarkable briefing wars, uh, which Angela Rayner has very much won. Um, and a fundamental weakening of Keir Starmer's authority. These results, dismal as they were, didn't need to be as damaging to Labour's leadership as they could have been. As, as we've discussed, there were actually some interesting gains. There are two new mayors. There are uh, some interesting sort of new council seats. Uh, Wales was a huge success. Over the weekend, the Labour leadership did not acknowledge any of these gains, nor indeed did it commiserate any of these losses. Instead, it focused on reshuffling its Westminster team. Um, a bizarre decision which has left him very much more exposed because, well, partly it's a politically inept decision, um, and also because it's actually upset what were his core supporter base within that party, where he's been quite combative with the membership, his key base of support, therefore, was the MPs who voted for Angela Rayner in as large, if not larger numbers in the last leadership election as voted for him. Um, so it's quite uh, it's quite a um, not an earthquake move, but it certainly weakened the foundations of his leadership by upsetting that core base. Similarly, by firing the chief whip, uh, who's been Nick Brown, who's been chief whip for 10 years. That's under Brown, Miliband, uh, Corbyn and Starmer, a real continuity, unity chief whip uh, removed from his post in the latest reshuffle. There's there's, there's a, an unsettling of Starmer's leadership here and you could end up where you were with with Ed Miliband, where everyone is putting in a putting in a posture for leadership. Um, I remember there was a story, um, there's a story about 2013 where Yvette Cooper got a new haircut uh, and it turned into about a week-long story about whether she was running for the leadership or not. Um, Starmer has put himself in that position where any shadow cabinet member who does something even slightly um, unique will start getting those sort of stories accruing around them because he has undermined his position to that extent and created that vulnerability for himself. I I'm happy to go further into this if there are any questions on I later and, and Sam, just just to add a, a, an outsider view on this, but but this yeah. is a complete gift to the government. Um, one of the things that I was 
dem demonstrated so much when when I was on my comment at CCHQ in the general election is is the Westminster bubble idea, right? This is such Westminster bubble story. Now, Keir Starmer didn't lose the election because Annalise Dodds was the not lose didn't do not didn't do well in the elections because Annalise Dodds was the shadow chancellor. I mean, no one knows who Annalise Dodds is anyway. It was really around the message and the fact that what Labour Party usually believe in is that people care about their internal fighting. And the truth is, a lot of people don't care about the internal fighting. People don't even know it's happening. But what it does do is, whilst Labour are infighting and looking inwards, it means that the government can actually get on and do things without having an opposition that is there to really, you know, have an alternative message. What it ends up appearing like is it's a Labour Party that's saying no and a government that's saying yes, when in theory it should really be the opposition who is saying yes, you know, you need to do more, you need to spend more, you need to be giving the North more money, and the opposition and the, the government who is saying no, we don't have the money to do this. So all of this distraction that's happening within the Labour Party just gives the government an opportunity to be able to go out and, and demonstrate their levelling up agenda. And, and a lot of it comes back to some of the sleaze that was thrown at, um, at the Conservative Party ahead of the local elections. And a lot of it didn't stick. A lot of people didn't even care. I think there was an interesting poll out today that said people only politically active. I think 33% of politically active people cared about it in the end, um, which just shows how, how it didn't really make a dent in, in Boris Johnson's personal approval ratings. Um, and, and it really gives the government an extra message of, you know, we're getting on with the job whilst the opposition are just fighting about their policy positions and who's the shadow chancellor. Um, and, and, and what, you know, I assume Sam and other Labour Party people hope is that, you know, they've now got themselves in order and they can now become an effective opposition where they have a clear message and they can start to, to attack the government on all fronts. However, um, as we said, we can talk about this for ages, but but it's probably best that we we move on. Yeah, and what what the elections and the the recent reshuffle uh, over the weekend has provided is the context into which the Queen's speech was delivered, um, which James and Alice, I believe, uh, you were going to speak to. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Mitchell. Uh, I mean, just one observation I would say on the Westminster bubble is. Um, I think a lot of stories are Westminster bubble stories, uh, but it's also amazing how 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 often the people who about whom a story is concerned decree them a Westminster bubble story that no one outside the bubble cares about. Uh, and I think to to Sam's point, the bubble matters if 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 a story has really pissed off or demoralised your own troops to the extent that it undermines your leadership, and then it can translate to a national story. And I think kind of why that matters for the Queen's speech is that a Westminster bubble story has basically, you know, careered through Labour's uh, uh, story, Labour's campaign running up to this point. Uh, and kind of we went into the Queen's speech thinking about where the hell Labour was, what the hell they were doing. And then the government slapped on the table a whole load of measures which were about kind of which were uh, you know, directly aimed at Labour's heartland. So you then go straight back to Hartlepool. And so the Westminster bubble on the Tory side is thinking that's amazing and, and uh, has completely forgotten about the frankly outrageous sleep stories that, uh, that, 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 that are hanging around the Prime Minister. Um, and it kind of it, it accentuates Keir Starmer's predicament. So anyway, uh, upfront kind of uh, segueing into the Queen's speech uh, directly. Yesterday, of course, uh, we had a kind of Covid compliant uh, Queen's speech. Um, 
and uh, but otherwise the kind of uh, otherwise and it was exceptional for that reason I think it was also exceptional because it was actually quite a serious event I mean it was a very very significant program uh, it was I think 31 bills uh, 31 bills that uh, that in totality do a hell of a lot and I think kind of they they speak a lot to they 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 um, speak very well to the priority, the political um, policy priorities of this government. And I suppose my upfront observation would be the complete dissonance between the reality of, of the program that was laid out and the narrative that was wrapped around it. So if you look at the, the lobby briefing pack that's on the cabinet office website, and there's a, kind of, there's a foreword from the prime minister, uh, the the narrative deployed by the prime minister is framed by COVID, and you know that's understandable. But uh, you know we are just coming out of COVID. Uh, but you know the whole picture is the the picture that's painted is one of a country emerging from the biggest crisis since World War Two, and using the opportunity of that crisis to do something different. So so the prime minister says that we are. Uh, as we're coming back to kind of coming out of lockdown, as we're going back to normal life, we won't be doing things the same way we're doing before. Uh, and instead, the government will be building back better, uh, better than before, better than COVID. Um, now, the narrative focus is perfectly understandable, uh, and the framing of this coming out of a crisis is perfectly reasonable. But in talking about how the UK has been given a historic opportunity, quote, to again, quote, harness the ingenuity and resolve revealed during the fight against COVID. Boris Johnson does beg the question about how much of the agenda he's, he's setting out would have been different if COVID had not happened. And I think that frankly, the answer to that is not a lot. In fact, we had a, we had a discussion before this call and we couldn't think of any single uh, item of legislation. There are, things, uh, there are things that have been announced, but item of legislation that would have been significantly different if COVID hadn't happened. Um, fundamentally, what this is about is the government's prior uh, strategic objectives. The government came out of the election in 2019 with two overriding strategic strategic objectives. Uh, one, to get re-elected, and in particular that implies by retaining the red seats, hence you get levelling up. Two, getting Brexit done, and ideally getting Brexit done in a way which isn't obviously a disaster. I take you back to the first strategic objective. Um, and that's basically what's at the heart of this Queen's speech, uh, and I think would have been had COVID not happened. In fact, had COVID not happened, we would have seen this Queen's speech a year earlier. Um, I mean, I so, so for example, on levelling up, if you think about that as fundamentally an exercise in dramatically increasing the productivity across the board in the UK, but with a particular political focus on certain northern seats, you're basically trying to bring the kind of the, the, the productivity of the UK up to broadly the same level as London, uh, then it's not a massive surprise that you then see at the heart of the Queen's speech bills on skills, you know, which is kind of school age and, 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 and uh, working life, uh, infrastructure, housing and planning right at the centre of the programme. You've also got bills on high speed rail, yes, in the north um, and, and, and the life sciences sector. So all of that is all of that is not a surprise, and I think would have happened anyway. And similarly on Brexit, um, the government announced the legislation. It's a it's a national insurance bill actually, which is quite interesting. But the, the government announced the legislation to enable free ports, uh, and uh, and 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 is also unveiling the state aid regime and onshoring a new procurement regime to re replace the EU one. Uh, an interest, interesting point about the procurement regime is it looks it looks like the, the government's giving themselves a lot more discretion, presumably to buy British. But I think that would have happened anyway. So I don't think we've got anything that's particularly new because of COVID. I think we've just got a lot of stuff that's happening because of Brexit and would have happened anyway. And the government's probably had a bit more time to think about it. Um, you know, albeit the COVID has been a bit of a distraction in the meantime. 
Um, and then layered on top of that, we've got a lot of populist stuff uh, on crime, the armed forces, the judiciary, you know, judicial review, much of which doesn't really add up to a lot. It's not really quite as advertised, but it's red meat to the activists, and that's the point of it. Uh, and then the, the final kind of principle to it, uh, in the year of COVID, I think it's no surprise, sorry, in, in the year of COP, it's no surprise that we have a significant environmental focus. And uh, I'm going to use that as my departure point to go to pass over to Alice, who's going to take us through some of the details. Thanks, James. Yeah, I'm just going to take us through some of the key bills that was announced yesterday. So I'll start off on sort of looking at procurement and city control bill will basically set out post-Brexit regulations on how the government can support private companies now the UK has left the EU's state aid regime. And the procurement bill, as James has mentioned, will replace EU rules on how the government buys services from the private sector, most notably to enable more buying British. And what's interesting about these bills is that both are post-Brexit sort of legislation to sort of consolidate and replace EU law. Um, as well, moving on, it, the National Insurance Contributions Bill is mentioned. This is more relevant because it carries, it reveals how the government plans to introduce its free ports, which were announced earlier on in the year in the budget. So it, you can see how the free ports will be set up now in these in these bills and how they will like allow tax breaks. Um, Another bill that was important is the draft online safety bill. So this draft bill will contain new requirements on how tax giants, uh, sorry, tech giants uh, will be able to tackle online online harmful illegal content. And the government says that these new internet laws will help keep children safe and combat racism and other abuse. And social media abuse has definitely been in the news recently. And this bill has been sort of long, long touted from even under Theresa May, they've been expecting a bill like this. Moving on, there's also an environment bill, which has been repeatedly delayed in introduction to Parliament and was expected. And this will again introduce new post-Brexit rules on protecting nature, legally, legally, legally binding environmental targets, and it will also probably include measures on air quality, as well as a more general investment in green jobs, which looking ahead to COP26 in November, sort of boost the government's environmental agenda and record. Um, moving on a bit more, there's also, there was a reference to a planning reform and a building safety bill. So the planning bill has been, again, is something that's been in the works for a while, and it will introduce changes to the planning system in England, including a controversial new zoning system. The government says this will help meet targets on house building, but likely just will include a lot of deregulation. And then the other side is the building, safe, building safety bill, and that will set out a new system for regulating the safety of high-rise buildings, inspecting construction sites. Uh, the government uh, previously voted down a similar bill in the last part, uh, in before before the Queen's speech, um, and this is sort of to deal with Grenfell whilst also protecting the government's record since Grenfell. Um, and then moving more on towards the sort of crime and security that was a significant part of, of the Queen's speech, uh, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill is going to be very prominent in the next parliament, mainly because it's so controversial, there's been many protests and it feeds into the government's culture war that they've been trying to stoke up around police reform. Um, it, so it will contain basically new powers for the police over protests and also new sentences from serious crimes. 
as well as this is sort of Priti Patel's um, key legislation, but another side of that is her reform of immigration and asylum. So whilst there were, in the speech there wasn't a, a, ref, a specific bill, it said there was going to be new legislation to overhaul the UK's post-Brexit asylum system and basically discourage migrants from crossing the chat English Channel. They'll say this is aimed at um, particularly the human traffickers that help and, ta- and target people at the top instead of people that are trying to come over. But ultimately, this is still part of the government's post-Brexit uh, immigration plans. While they say this will help produce a fair immigration system, it will still, again, feed into the government's migration and re- rhetoric, essentially. And then finally, just moving on to the Electoral Integrity Bill and Judicial Review Bill. These are, again, to do with, these are quite controversial, but the Electoral Integrity Bill will help introduce controversial plans to introduce mandatory voter ID. This is going to be in the news, I think, significantly over the, over the, next, the next week, mainly because it gets criticism from people who think that it disenfranchises voters, um, especially people that would be young people or uh, migrants. And then, yeah, finally, the Judicial Review Bill will set out the government's plans to change how its decisions can be challenged in the courts, which, if you look back, for, um, the, this government has specifically struggled uh, with, fought against the courts. So this will be a way of them basically challenging how this can be, yeah, challenging how this can be, uh, how they can take this on, if that makes sense. Okay, uh, yeah, so that's sort of covering the bills. Thanks, um, Thanks Alice. Yeah. Um, I mean, just one one point on the kind of uh, the Judicial Review Bill, bill in particular, because I, uh, I never really saw the point of the Judicial Review Bill. I mean, basically, Judicial Review, the government by and large wins Judicial Reviews. The few times they lose, they lose because they've done something wrong, and that's almost invariably the case. So, um, so it wasn't obvious to me that if you're going to spend time on doing something, you should. This, this was an obvious thing to start with, um, and they came out with a kind of long. They came out with a series of proposals, looking, look, looking. Well, they they appointed a commission to to look at reviewing judicial review, who basically came back with some very limp proposals. They then came out came up with a consultation, uh, which had some completely different proposals. Um, and what you've got is a two-bit bill uh, that uh, gives the courts a discretionary power to suspend to suspend imposition of an order, and um, and and kind of tinkers a bit with the tribunal system. So it's a it's a kind of interesting uh, it's an interesting pathway to a not very impressive policy. But you know, I think it, I think it's another example of where there's a complete dissonance between what the government is saying and what they're doing. Because I'm sure that it will be used as a, as, a, as evidence of uh, you know clipping the clipping the, ju- the judiciary's wings. Thank you for listening into the special edition of Political Capital, brought to you by the Lansons Public Affairs team. For further insight from Lansons, we run a Political Capital newsletter, which contains further insight analysis from Lansons and polling company opinion. If you would like to subscribe to the newsletter or to receive further updates about the podcast, please go to the public affairs page of the Lancers website and click the subscribe to Political Capital. Mm-hmm.